This is Monday Morning QB, February 1st, 2021. I'm Askia Mohammed. Today on the show, a South African take on the South African COVID variant. Coronavirus and the Native American population. Let's buy American again. Psychiatrists apologize for racism and a Black History Month remembrance of U Street, DC's Black Broadway. All that and more, stay with us. Everyone who is paying attention to this year's second wave of the coronavirus pandemic is acutely aware of what's known as the South African variant, a new, more virulent strain that is sweeping the African continent and the globe. South Africans, like journalist Grant Clark, who lives in KwaZulu-Land, recall the time a generation ago when they similarly faced scorn over HIV when it was the world's leading infection concern. But today, they're condemning wealthy white countries for hoarding their COVID vaccine. In fact, uh, Africa has six of the top 10 countries with the fastest increase in infections around the world. So of the 10 countries that where, where we're seeing the fastest rise in infections, six of them are in Africa. But countries like Nigeria, uh, Kenya, Malawi is now the world's fastest, has the world's highest rate of infection at the moment, um, and are also one of the least prepared countries to deal with this. Kenya, as well as experiencing challenges in many other countries. And as you might know, Aski, or your listeners might know, you know, uh, health systems in Africa have been tenuous at best. I mean, in some countries, very, very poor infrastructure, hospitals, clinics, provision of, of medical, um, you know, um, supplies and that kind of thing is very, very poor um, and in demand. And so this is the concern now is that this is just going to um, place, you know, an unbearable burden on those countries. So there's a lot of concern about that. And for that reason, uh, I, I'm not sure uh, if perhaps your news card carries this um, in, in recent days, but our president, South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, has joined other presidents in condemning what we call vaccine nationalism and has pleaded with wealthier nations to stop hoarding vaccines. We are about to start a vaccine rollout, uh, actually beginning next week, beginning of February, with um, frontline workers. But the problem is this, that many wealthier nations have have bought up a lot of the vaccines that are available. For example, Canada now owns uh, three times as many vaccines as it needs for its population. I mean, that's just unconscionable. And that's the word that many leaders, including at the UN, have used, that this is unconscionable for wealthier nations, you know, to, to in a panic buy, uh, you know, to hug up all these vaccines. And also what's happening is that it's, it's quite shocking that, in fact, wealthier nations like the US, UK, uh, some EU countries are, are getting the vaccines at cheaper prices than poorer countries. Um, and again, that's because they have greater bargaining power, you know, historical influence, you know, the whole story about rich nations and their power with drug companies. Um, so, you know, that is, that's a serious, serious concern right now. The attention needs to focus on, on poorer countries, you know, because the idea is if rich countries just take care of themselves, what they don't realize is that this is a global problem. And as we've just seen uh, in South Carolina, some of the, um, the South African variants have been detected in the U.S. now. 
And um, President Biden has now banned all travel from South Africa. I think he, last week he issued a um, travel ban. Um, you know, that's not going to stop it. And as soon as you get, the sooner that we get all, um, you know, a majority of populations around the world vaccinated together, the sooner that the global pandemic spread will stop. So it doesn't matter if rich nations are fully vaccinated. People travel, and 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 we know that viruses move with them. So um, the sooner, again, you know, that at least they say 60% of a population is vaccinated, you know, the better the better chance we have for stopping the pandemic. What would a just global response look like from your perspective? Well, uh, for one, it would be wealthy nations um, pledging, putting their money where their mouth is, or putting their mouth <laughs> where their pocket is, rather, uh, to make sure that poorer countries are able to afford as many vaccines as they need to reach so-called herd or population immunity. Um, and so that, that requires funding, basically. Uh, and it also means that uh, drug companies, which obviously have the upper hand and have, and for many, many, many years, have had the power to call prices as they wish, should be held to some standard about capping prices for vaccines so that poorer countries can afford to purchase them. Uh, I think essentially that, that at, its, at its heart is what a just, um, a just response would be. And, and to make sure that, of course, that you know, distribution happens in many of these countries this year. As I mentioned, infrastructure is poor. Um, I think that's the bottom line. And, you know, that's, that's a call, a cry from civil society across the globe, but particularly in the global south, you know, to, to, for, for rich countries to also see that their interests lie with our interests. I mean, their well-being depends on ours. And, you know, that, that's sort of like the push towards a bigger world order. And that applies to economics as well, that if we, the globe is going to recover economically, that we all need to work together. What is the, the mood in South Africa with the high COVID infection rate there? There is near panic in South Africa at the moment, uh, at the state of affairs with COVID infection rates. Um, there's lots of concern, lots of fear. Uh, the rate at which infections are going in South Africa, and pretty much thanks to a new variant which has emerged and is now spreading across the globe, a new variant that um, enables the virus to spread faster than it has been, uh, has been pushing a so-called second wave here that started in December um, last year. Um, the statistics are scary. We now, in a country of almost 60 million people, we have... Um, almost one and a half million infections and rising at a rate of almost 1,000 new infections a day uh, and more than um, 125,000 deaths and rising. Uh, and there's no immediate solution aside from vaccines, but uh, at the moment there's, there's no immediate way to, to curb that spread. Compare this to the mood in South Africa when people around the world seem shocked at the spread of HIV there, and that seemed to be an HIV hotspot. Well, it certainly fuels a sense of deja vu uh, here. Um, I can't do an accurate comparison in terms of the, the actual impact in terms of numbers and statistics, but it certainly fuels that level, uh, sort of that level of crisis, really. When you look at the death rates, the infection rates, 
uh, and the fact that, uh, you know, all efforts by government to try and, you know, get people to practice prevention measures don't seem to be working. Uh, I mean, something that, you know, listeners in the United States might, you know, do well to remember is that, you know, as a as a poor country, we're middle income, but we're also developing, you know, we have one third of our population live in shack, you know, with no running water, no electricity, no infrastructure, no sanitation, and sometimes up to five people in a shack. And so when somebody is infected and you say you need to self-isolate away from the rest of the family, where are they supposed to go? There's just one room. So everybody gets infected. And the shacks are maybe, you know, three feet apart or five feet apart. So the next door neighbors get infected as easily too. Everybody's at one tap. Hundreds of people sharing one communal faucet for water. Infection happens there. So, you know, it's, it's a, the problem is that it's also socioeconomic and um, poverty is at the center of it. So it's very, very hard to address right now. Even though you mentioned South Africa as a developing country and you described these really um, third world conditions, many of us think of South Africa as a scientifically advanced country, which at one time even had uh, nuclear weapons. I mean, that seems to be a contradiction. I mean, is the science in, in medicine there lagging behind? Uh, what about the, the scientific genius that we think of belonging to South Africa? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that is that is the bitter irony for us, isn't it, that we are a country um, with state-of-the-art um, healthcare and med- medical facilities. Um, uh, yeah, and, you know, we have history, we have historical, uh, you know, successes around first heart transplanting and many other things. And we have scientists now who are at the forefront globally of developing vaccines uh, of tracking this virus, you know, uh, we have some outstanding, uh, you know, scientists and researchers. But the problem is, again, you know, that that is great, but we are living in what the World Bank recently has uh, determined to be the most unequal country in the world. Um, maybe only, you know, followed by the United States. Um, so what that means is that while we do have access to that kind, those kinds of resources and that kind of talent and, and um, yeah, scientific um, advancement, you know, the majority of our, of our people don't benefit from that because of that historical inequality, which still is a huge, huge gap, or hasn't been addressed. So, you know, we might be able to develop great vaccines, but can we get them to the majority of people who need them? Um, you know, and that's, that's the big stumbling block. Grant Clark in Durban, South Africa, thank you for sharing with us. Thank you very much, Askia. It's great, great to be with you. Death tolls rise as the coronavirus pandemic spreads among Native Americans at disproportionate rates. The death of tribal elders, along with the history and language that they hold, has led to a cultural crisis in Native communities. Amara Evering reports. Coronavirus has ripped through Native American communities, not only creating a devastating health crisis, but also severing connections to history, culture, and language as the pandemic continues to take the lives of tribal leaders. In Oklahoma, a spokesman for the Muscogee Creek Nation calls it a, quote, cultural book burning 
a loss of once living historical record stored up in the bodies of elders. In the Navajo Nation in Arizona, where COVID-19 deaths continue to climb, protecting elders has become the utmost priority. I spoke with Monica Harvey, executive director of Defend Our Community, an organization committed to protecting elders in the Navajo Nation in Loop, Arizona. She spoke to me about how she went from working regular shifts at her job to running a necessary organization for her community. I work at Sam's Club and every morning we would always see lines like it was Black Friday. And every day you see families coming in from the reservation. And if I drive 45 miles to get here, some of them had to drive hours because on the reservation, they don't have the grocery stores and the facilities that provide PPE. If we opened at 7, some families would tell me that they leave from home about 2 a.m. just so they can get here. Unfortunately, these trips that stretch for hours in order to just buy food and necessities aren't uncommon. The Navajo Nation, which is actually comparable to the size of West Virginia, only has 13 grocery stores in total. So that means most of the time food and even water can feel out of reach. And COVID-19, which has led to increased food insecurity, has made these long trips just to buy groceries commonplace. When Harvey recognized the toll this was taking on her own community, she decided, with the encouragement of her friend and now board member Ryan, that she would help in any way she could. That's when I decided, all right, you know what, I, I work at Sam's Club. I'm here before it opens. I can get some stuff before we open and, you know, just gather here and there. It was only supposed to be a one-time delivery thing, but the need for help was so great that eight months later, we're still going. And so, what was thought of as a one-time delivery is now a necessary resource for her community. So we didn't tell families to come to us. We went to them. I think that kind of differentiates us from other groups. It just takes one person, I guess, to start something and then and it just starts to grow. It's just amazing to see like it just go from a little ripple. Now it's expanding. As they meet elders in their own homes to deliver necessary supplies, they also see the reality of the conditions that some of them are living in. You get to see firsthand how elders are living. They don't have electricity. They don't have running water. Sometimes they don't have running vehicles. In the Navajo Nation, a third of the population does not have running water. This is especially an issue in Loop, Arizona, where Defend Our Community is based. Where we are helping in loop. There's a lot of windmills and water stations that are not operating right now. They're not working or they're either contaminated. And at some point they closed the water station down and we didn't know why. And that was like one of the main sources for everybody in the community. So everybody had to travel again off the reservation just to get drinking water. And so over a third of Navajo Nation residents have to travel to a reservation's most populous city or a nearby border town just to access clean water. And with the pandemic, this is especially problematic. 
we go to homes who don't have running water and for them even to get clean water they have to either be store-bought or they have to go to a well that's not contaminated we have a lot of uranium mines on the reservation and that contaminated a lot of water sources so it's very hard to tell people wash your hands for 20 seconds when the water they have they have to wash their hands in a wash pan but for many elders Washing their hands with clean water isn't their only obstacle for preserving their health. It's also simply accessing health care. As far as medical, it's very challenging for my community because the clinic that we had, they closed it because of the pandemic. So now the community members have to travel outside the reservation to a border town and they have to go there to get their medication, their medical needs. The Navajo Nation, which again is comparable to the size of West Virginia, only has six hospitals in total. The underfunding and understaffing of these hospitals has had a devastating impact on Native communities. Nationwide, there was an obvious gap in medical care. Last year, when a Native American health center in Seattle asked for COVID-19 supplies, in return, they were sent a box of body bags. Though Harvey has not been met with such dramatic displays of negligence, she recognizes that many health agencies have offered inadequate care. The lack of medical facilities and medical staff is, it was there. You know, it was so hard to, to try to find some type of help. In a way, like, I feel like the whole system, all, all of them can try to do some type of procedure better. These systemic issues on the federal and state level, as well as in terms of tribal leadership, has contributed to the disproportionate impact of the pandemic on Native communities. With this lack of help, community members often have to take things into their own hands. There's so much more that could be done. You know, and that's why a lot of people on the reservations develop their own grassroots organizations. For Harvey, these existing systematic issues appear to her through her visits to elders. As she provides them with essential items, she also gets to peek into their lives in intimate ways. One that really touched home with me was this elder. She wasn't able to take care of herself. So when we went into her home, her living condition was just so heartbreaking. She had a refrigerator, but it was with expired food. And she had spider webs inside her home and they were black widow spiders. So we had to go in and try to help her get rid of those spiders. And she would tell us that no one comes out to check on her. And caring for elders is more personal to Harvey than just protecting history, language, and culture. My culture and my language was basically taught to me through like my grandparents and my mom and my dad. And one of the whole reasons we started this too was... I had two elder grandmothers and just recently my grandmother contracted the virus and she didn't win her battle. Sometimes when I drive with my grandma and we're listening to music, we'll kind of sing together and she'll explain to me what that song means and so forth. And she was one of the main reasons we started this. No matter what, even if they're not related to you, when you lose an elder, it hits in a whole nother way. They hold language, they hold their arts and crafts skill or their storytelling or their songs. Harvey, who has suffered from loss, 
has gained a few grandmas through her journey in Defend Our Community. We have a clan system. So even if they're related to me clan-wise, they'll greet me in a certain way, whether it's their daughter or their grandchild, or they know how to determine how we're related. And I'm just like, I I know you're related to me somehow, but I'm just going to call you grandma. And and most of them are okay with that because they they know deep down, no matter what, we're all related. I'm Amara Evering from Monday Morning QB, and that was... Well, I'll let her tell you for herself. I'll introduce myself traditionally. Yate, she Monica Harvey, and Nishia. Nakreda Nea Nishna, Ado Tordich Bitni Bashishin, Sidna Jitni Dashiche, Ado Kia Ani Dashanele. Translation is Hello, my name is Monica Harvey. My first clan is Mexican clan. I am born for Bitterwater clan. My maternal clan is Black Streak Wood. And my paternal clan is the Towering House clan. Um, I am the executive director of Defend Our Community. For more information, visit Defend Our Community on Facebook. Their Facebook page also provides information for their Venmo, and they are currently accepting donations. Joe Biden's first full week in office brought a slew of executive orders on climate change, criminal justice, and the economy. Last Monday, Biden ordered the federal government to buy American by closing contracting and procurement loopholes. While it may sound like a simple technical tweak, this executive order represents the vast power of the government to shape our economy for the better. Reporter Chris Banker-Drowns has that story. A rotating cast of Democrats and Republicans have overseen a decimation of American manufacturing jobs over the last several decades. Political support for transnational corporations has come in the form of favorable trade and domestic policy, including federal contracting. John Cavana, director of the Institute for Policy Studies, says this bipartisan history of deindustrialization created the political blowback we are reaping today. Donald Trump got elected because of this history. That's why he got elected. He said, I'm paying attention to it and I promise you jobs. Now he completely failed on that and it was all rhetoric, but he was the first president to go into the industrial Midwest and say, you've been decimated by government and I'm here to help you. Uh, And unless the Biden administration really delivers on this broad set of issues, they will lose in four years. So this becomes not only important for what actually could help working people, the conversation we're having here is central to whether the Republican party can have a resurgence because the Democratic party abandons once again, working people in this country. Progressives need to understand the efficacy of Trump's approach in deindustrialized parts of the country, but stake out our own version of pro-worker politics. I think as progressive internationalists, we care about two things. We care that the jobs that are created in the United States are good, dignified jobs, and in every instance possible are union jobs, one. And two, unlike Donald Trump, who demonized Mexican workers and Chinese workers and said they're stealing your jobs, we understand that the key is to also create policies that encourage the respect of internationally recognized worker rights in Mexico and China 
so that workers there can enjoy the rights that workers everywhere have fought for centuries for. So what does this have to do with Biden's Buy American executive order? Just as progressives need to understand Trump's empty political support for ex-manufacturing workers, we need to create a strategy that goes beyond rhetoric. We need to understand just how powerful an economic actor the federal government is. Something I think that most people are less aware of is that the U.S. government is a giant buyer of goods and services. It does a huge amount of infrastructure spending, which then leads to the buying of materials, hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, now, for, for progressives, we, we always remind ourselves a lot of this is bad stuff the government's buying because the government is, is the biggest stimulator of military production in the world. It's also not even particularly good for the economy, all that military buying, because you just buy it and then you use it. It doesn't, it doesn't have a multiplier effect in the economy. But a huge amount of what they buy is good. And we're about to have a giant conversation in this country about a shift in the economy from a fossil fuel militarized economy to a clean and more peaceful economy. And hundreds of billions of dollars are going to go into that transformation. Biden's executive order is a window into how progressives can use government to achieve massive goals. The order itself is fairly limited. It mandates American vessels carry cargo between American ports, creates a made-in-America directorship at the Office of Management and Budget, and centers on the closure of loopholes around what are called domestic content thresholds. The federal government claims that it wants to purchase goods that are made in the United States, but they've created vast loopholes. So just imagine, you know, the way this works. The government says, we want that. Then it puts out contracts and a company comes along and says, "Okay, we want the contract, but we buy a lot of stuff from Mexico because we get it so cheaply there. So please give us a waiver. And Donald Trump's government gave him a waiver. Basically, what Biden has just done is closed a lot of those loopholes. And he's done another thing, which is good. Any company that gets one of these contracts, if it's asking for a waiver, saying, look, we really can't buy this because no company in the United States produces it. We can't get it from a U.S. company. That's going to be stuck right up on a website. And it's going to say what the company argued and why they got the waiver. That's gonna create a huge incentive for the government agencies that oversee these programs to really look for American-made goods. This tactic can be used to address any number of economic goals, not just around buying American. Federal contracting rules set standards for the broader economy, and the applications are seemingly endless. The government could say we would favor, we would only give contracts, this is just an example, to corporations that pay their workers a certain ratio of what they pay their CEOs. If you're paying your CEO 400 times your median worker, you don't get the contract. So federal contracting standards really could be turned into a terrific instrument, not just to help manufacturing and workers, but to address another central plague of our nation, which is out of control inequality. Biden's executive order also instructs federal contracting to be more geographically and racially inclusive, which, while not new for Democratic administrations, does bode well. Democratic administrations have put an emphasis on trying to encourage 
greater minority-owned businesses to get contracts, and counties that are also poorer to get contracts. And this will be a huge test, I, I feel, of the Biden administration. I do think the Biden people understand and appreciate that they were elected into office by people of color and that they have the Senate now because of people of color and brilliant organizers in Georgia. I, I really feel a deep appreciation of that from all of them. They get that. Therefore, I think the racial justice agenda of this administration is genuine. Their goals are genuine. And federal procurement standards are one way they can do it. So Biden's executive order seems progressive enough. But is it truly internationalist? Canadian officials complained last week that the order could harm Canadian firms that contract with the U.S. federal government. But Kavana says we shouldn't worry about Canada and that raising standards in the United States helps more than harms our trading partners. They're doing what they're supposed to do, the Canadian officials. You're supposed to complain when something like this happens. I think the bigger point here for, for us as progressives is, can we push the story that Canadian progressives also push? We want to reorient all of our economies in the world more towards meeting the needs of people and the planet. And we have to start with, with our own. Uh, we've been doing that terribly in this country. So I think many of the Canadians that I know are applauding this because they see it as a step towards greater worker rights and protections in the United States. And if there's greater worker rights and protections in this country, it helps them in Canada. Most progressive voters did not name candidate Joe Biden as their first or second choice in 2020. But Biden could still become a progressive president. Executive orders like this one and massive stimulus spending like that announced earlier this month puts Biden on the right path. But taking progressive actions isn't enough. Biden needs to coexist with and listen to social movements. He's acknowledging the giant obstacles we face. And here's the thing I don't know. Does he understand that he'll only win them through massive organizing on the street? If he, like Roosevelt, understands it and quietly embraces it, we can win a lot more than I think anybody sitting here today thinks is possible. John Cavana, director of the Institute for Policy Studies and author of the forthcoming The Water Defenders, How Ordinary People Saved a Country from Corporate Greed. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. The American Psychiatric Association is the oldest national physician association in the country. In the minds of blacks in the field, that means they've had a long time to commit egregious acts against black people, all in the name of medical science. Last month, the APA began the process of making amends for both the direct and indirect acts of racism in psychiatry. The APA Board of Trustees issued a formal apology to its members, patients, their families, and the public for enabling discriminatory and prejudicial actions and racist practice in psychiatric treatment for black, indigenous, and people of color. Dr. Ray Winbush is a psychologist who is the director of the Institute for Urban Research at Morgan State University. He recalls efforts going back decades to get the APA 
to reform. The late Bobby Wright, you know, when he was in Chicago, he and I went to school together. For years, he had tried to get the American Psychiatric Association to declare racism as a mental health disorder. <laughs> and the joke was that if you did that, you know, two-thirds of white America would be declared, you know, mentally insane. And furthermore, they could use that as a defense. In a, you know, in a court of law that, well, you know, I'm racist, but that's a mental disorder. So you can't execute me or something. So there's been controversy about it, but, you know. So the, the Psychiatric Association said that their early practices laid the groundwork for inequities in clinical treatment. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, there's a whole lot, a lot of black men you know, during the 1960s that were uh, arrested, they were diagnosed as being psychotic and schizophrenic. Those were psychiatrists who were doing that. Also, like lobotomies, when they used to literally cut out part of the brain, were disproportionately given to black people uh, rather than white people. during the 20th century, about 60,000 people were sterilized, and psychiatrists were behind a lot of this stuff. Um, the, the old drapedomania thing about if you ran away from enslavement, that was done by a psychiatrist. Uh, Benjamin Rush, the so-called father of American psychiatry, thought that the color the skin color of black people was a disease that could be cured. And so they would structure their interventions and medications and treatments along racist lines. And that's what the American Psychiatric Association, you know, is, has reference to in that statement that the early days of psychiatry, I mean, it was, a, it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. So what were the effects of this on the black population at large? Well, the number one thing is like, there was an article written a few years ago called Rumors of Inferiority. Uh, The idea that, uh, you know, that black people in general were inferior came out of the American psychological and the American psychiatric uh, association and that these so-called rumors of inferiority you know assigned black students to lower grades well all of that came from psychiatry and psychology with the invention of the IQ test all of that stuff the, the, almost the entire challenge that black people aren't intellectually inferior or are intellectually inferior to white people came from the, you know, psychiatric and psychological establishment, those organizations. Uh, Bob Guthrie, uh, late black psychologist, he wrote this book, and I used it in my class called Even the Rat Was White. And it's a history, a black history of psychology and psychiatry. And, I mean, it reads like some of the most racist so-called scientific literature that's ever been put out there. So, um, 
I mean, I would say, if I were to say the two sciences that were most responsible for the inferiorization of black people in this country, it would definitely be psychiatry, psychology. I put that in one category. And law. I mean, if you want to call law science, I mean, those are the two. Aside from the superiority thinking that white people had, I don't guess they needed scientists to to make them believe that anymore. What was the effect of this racist psychiatry on white people? Well, you know, I, I'm reading this book by this sister, Alioma, her name. I've got it right here. She has this new book I call Mediocre. Yeah, she's uh, Nigerian, Igeoma Aluo. And she asked the intriguing question, what happens if for centuries you tell white men that they're superior to everybody and in fact they're really just mediocre? And what happens is that they get this false sense of they're great, they're they're the best. And in reality, they aren't. And so she, at best, white males are mediocre. And I think white people in general have this false sense that they're somehow superior because they had all of these things that they took and they were told constantly. I mean, the, the myth of the American cowboy conquered the West and, you know, killed Buffalo and slaughtered the Indians. That gives over, you know, generations this idea that I, you know, I can do anything. Nobody can stand in my way and everybody's inferior to me. It's almost like what the last poet said, you know, years and years ago. They made that rap called The White Man Has a God Complex. You know, he really does. You know, they joke about being masters of the universe, and they aren't, but they think they are. I mean, we it is, it's epitomizing like this dude that just left the White House that somehow I'm above and beyond reproach about anything. And at best, as the sister says, they're mediocre. The unfortunate thing, the damage has been done to black people is that we start to believe that those rumors of inferiority we start acting the way they have you know made us I mean every time I see a black person on a commercial on TV they're either dancing or with a white you know person a black male and, and so we start acting the roles that they have assigned us and that's damaging to us I had made a presentation in London with these black folk that wanted to know about what was going on over here relative to this thing on the 6th, black folk in general. And it's amazing how even now, you know, after 500 some odd years that we still have faith that white people are going to ultimately do the right thing about us or toward us. And all history proves otherwise, but we still cling to that. 
And I think that the only people that can end white supremacy is Dr. Welding used to say, are white people. And they don't seem that they're about to end it anytime soon. I mean, these people are deadly. And it's because they've been told, again, like this sister said, so many, for centuries, they've been told that they're, you know, all of that in a bag of chips. And now when they see that they see a black woman, you know, possibly becoming president of the United States, a black man in red, even though I think they were just moderate people, they feel threatened by it and they feel like they deserve to be where this sister is now as well as where Obama was or something. That's why I think this is all going to have a bad ending. But that's my opinion. You know, I think it's all, all of the you know, the only thing that all empires have in common, I don't care if it's the Roman, Greek, British, French, the only thing they all have in common is eventually they collapse. And we may be in the middle, or at least at the beginning of the collapse of the American empire. Dr. Ray Winbush. His reference to Dr. Francis Cress Welsing brings to mind one of the most important and controversial black psychiatrists of our time. She is the author of The Crest Theory of Color Confrontation and The Isis Papers. For years until her death in January 2016, she hosted monthly forums at Howard University to discuss race and mental health. Anthony Jones helped make those sessions run smoothly. To deal with racism, white supremacy, what it is and how it works and how it affects the psyche, uh, not only of people of color, but also of the people who are perpetuating it. So to have the American Psychiatric Association um, make a public statement, a public apology, um, that's a big milestone for that, for that group. Um, and they even provide examples of how the profession, when I say they, I mean, meaning the American Psychiatric Association, they even include materials of how they have been perpetuators of racism, white supremacy over the years. So for me, when I saw that, the foundation that she had laid um, was critical to get the APA to where they are today, as far as I'm concerned. It's not the end. Uh, certainly, this allows for a broader conversation. Now, even within the APA, they they acknowledged when they, I want to say it was during the George Floyd, in the aftermath of the George Floyd uh, killing, a lot of organizations, um, including the APA, um, set up initiatives and task forces, and the APA set up a task force. And even within the APA in 2020 at the time, there was some pushback from some of their colleagues in psychiatry. Um, I mean, you have right now a lot of bioethicists. The conventional bioethicist thinking is that racism shouldn't be talked about um, in terms of um, being an issue or being a matter of bioethics. Who could ever think of such? Racism is affecting people's lives. Um, and, and it's the reason why many people are sick. We know the work that Dr. Wilson has done to try to get her colleagues in psychiatry. And even if you go to the Crest Theory, there's language in the Crest Theory 
that's reprinted in the ISIS papers that gives a tasking for uh, social uh, for social scientists, behavioral scientists to to do with regards to white people um, in terms of people who are trying to help white people become comfortable with their numbers. But that is another important step because it's, I mean, the, the effects of racism, it's, we see it every day on TV with all of these police killings and everything else and race, health disparities, but there's very little talk about white mental health and what is causing white people to uh, engage in some of the behaviors that they engage in, what is going on in their mind. And conventional psychiatry and conventional behaviors, behavioral sciences do not, um, they don't go there. Uh, but if we look with our own eyes and just observe and listen to some of these messages, you know, they are concerned about multiculturalism, which is a code word for the increasing numbers of non-white people. Um, in Charlottesville, they said, you will not replace us. Um, you know, so there's a concern about their birth rate, declining birth rate. So there, there are ways a good behavioral scientist would, would observe the behavior and then they can analyze it. But right now the system is not even focusing on white mental health and what is driving uh, what we see every day unfolding, like the White House. What would prompt the White House to issue on Martin Luther King Jr.'s holiday the 1776 commission report justifying the founding fathers use of slavery and in that same report accusing progressivism as being the problem it takes a certain mindset to do that on on a national holiday that honors a person who fought and gave his life for civil rights Often when people think of the U Street Corridor in Washington, they think of the legendary cultural icons who lived, worked, and performed in what would become known as Black Broadway. Artists such as Duke Ellington, Pearl Bailey, Zora Neale Hurston, and Langston Hughes. And that is surely an exceptional history, but the neighborhood was so much more. One DC-based filmmaker is making sure the whole story is being told. Sue Goodwin has more. From the early 20s of the last century and into the 1950s, D.C.'s U Street Corridor emerged as a thriving and self-sufficient center of black, commercial, intellectual, and cultural life. Subject to Jim Crow laws that kept them from setting up shop in other parts of town, hundreds of black-owned businesses found a home there, including hotels, restaurants, banks, offices, and theaters. And so it was known as a city within a city. We had to create our own ecosystem and incubator to survive and thrive. That is Shalee Hainsworth. She is an award-winning multimedia maker who grew up in Washington, and she is now the executive producer of the Black Broadway on You transmedia project. She started the project as the area was and continues to be going through rapid change largely due to gentrification. Realizing what could be lost along the way, Shalee Hainsworth decided that the history of the U Street Corridor could not be part of that. 
and just the social and civic impact of this community to me is amazing. I know people always compare it to Harlem and other communities, but what really stood out was that this was a community where we actually owned our businesses. We owned the buildings. We had black architects who were building some of the first buildings in America that were funded by African Americans. And just the way they came together to make this happen, they were issuing stocks. And and so it just allowed me to take a deeper dive into the history. And it just brought me just a sense of pride of our achievements. But I felt that this needed to be shared with others. And so the Black Broadway on You Transmedia Project was born and is best described by the creator herself. So I launched the Black Broadway on You project in February 2014, and it's what I call a multimedia cultural storytelling platform. The goal of the project still is to expand the narrative and what we've been told and what we've heard about what took place along the U Street Quarter when it was known by as Black Broadway which is a phrase coined by the late great actress Pearl Bailey, who actually jump-started her career on U Street when she was a young girl, because she lived in D.C. at that time. But basically, it's a multimedia platform, uh, a public history initiative created to amplify, chronicle, preserve, and enhance the undertold story, cultural legacy, local memories, and voices of Washington, D.C.'s marginalized Black community. Even while marginalized from the larger community of D.C., what Shalay Hainsworth hopes people understand from visiting the site is the extent to which this was a groundbreaking community with an impact that went far beyond its geographical borders. There were a lot of path breakers and trailblazers that lived there, folks like Duke Ellington and, of course, as I mentioned, Pearl Bailey, but there were also other pioneers in business in the civil rights movement, which was known at that time as a civil rights movement, but they were moving the needle forward for African Americans, not just who lived along the U Street quarter, but for African Americans or Negroes, as we were called at that time, throughout the United States. And so when you go to the website, our platform, you get a sense of what the community was, who was there beyond the music and entertainment. Other pioneers like, of course, Carter G. Woodson. He uh, lived close to U Street and actually at one point in time, I'm learning now, actually had a, a bookstore along U Street. And, of course, Carter G. Woodson is the father of black history. You had folks like Mary McLeod Bethune, who was living in the community. Basically, when you go to the website, you you get an opportunity to learn about these trailblazers and pathbreakers. And also, the goal of the project is to tell the story through the lens of the people who actually lived along the quarter. This emphasis on authentic storytelling, in other words, for black people who are part of the U Street story to tell their own story, as opposed to having it told for them, led Shalay Hainsworth to begin the project by compiling a comprehensive oral history of U Street with a focus on the people who thrived during the era of segregation in D.C. And so I've had the great fortune of interviewing many elders who lived during that era. And those are some of the voices that you'll hear on the platform, as well as those who have been instrumental in just preserving the culture of many business owners who launched their businesses during the height of Black Broadway, Black businesses such as Industrial Bank, 
Lee's Flower and Carb Shop, and then Chili Bow. All three of those businesses are still on U Street today. And so that's what you get. You get a, a quick snapshot of what took place. And the goal, again, of the project is to amplify and expand the narrative of the Black achievement, history, and culture along U Street. The website is now on its fourth iteration, and the project is now raising funds to get to the next so they can add more interviews and so they can produce content in a way that is highly attuned to the user experience. One of the features you can find on the website is a set of mini-docs that run on average a few minutes and add compelling visuals to the oral histories they have collected. Because, you know, everyone's viewing content now on their mobile phones, and so we create these little mini docs so that people who are just searching around, sifting around, you know, they say people are on websites about 30 seconds. And so we do these short stories with the goal that hopefully once they hear these voices and, you know, once we add the full interviews on here, that they'll be inspired to listen to what some of these elders or pathbreakers have to say about the community and what was happening. One of those mini docs is titled The Early Side of Duke. And we're going to hear that in just a moment. But first, we asked Shalay Hainsworth to introduce it for us and tell us who we will be hearing from. I just felt that it was important to tell a story about his life along U Street and in Washington, D.C., because many people aren't aware that Duke Ellington is a native Washingtonian who's often associated with Harlem, the Harlem Renaissance, the Cotton Club, and people don't really know that he is a native son of Washington, D.C., and he actually launched some of his earlier bands and performances at venues along the U Street Quarter, such as as the True Reformers Building, which is now the Public Welfare Foundation at 12th and U, just a few steps from Ben's Chili Bowl. And so when you look at Duke Ellington, you think of elegance, class, grace, and talent. And this community shaped and molded the Duke persona, and it coined him the Duke for his elegance. And so I felt that it was important for people to know that he started his career because there were a lot of prominent musicians and uh, educators that were teaching uh, African-Americans music and poetry because that was part of the framework and the fabric of who we were. I've had the great fortune to interview Duke Ellington's children, uh, his son, Edward Kennedy Ellington Jr., and his daughter, April Ellington. And they're all, they also perform as well. Their group is known as Savoy Ellington. And so they're basically teaching us about the Duke experience, his roots here in D.C., how it impacted him, how it basically formed his early music uh, and, and his ragtime to jazz. This is his whole outlook and insights on his music and how the U Street community impacted that journey. Shalay Hainsworth, the executive producer of the Black Broadway on You Transmedia Project. And now here is the audio from the mini-doc on their site titled The Early Side of Duke. I was very entrepreneurial as a young kid. Um, he sold peanuts at, uh, at Griffith Stadium. Uh, he had a, a sign painting company uh, in, in teenage years. So he always knew about work ethic. He learned that from his father, my grandfather James. Prior to people recognizing his gift as far as music, he was an extremely skilled painter. And uh, as a matter of fact, he won a scholarship to go to the Pratt Institute. 
Uh, his first composition he wrote when he was 14, as I'm sure you're aware, it was entitled Soda Fountain Rag, and it was a ragtime uh, song. He played five or six different times with a different treatment on it, and people had no idea that it was the same song when he was 14, which was quite fun for him, and he, he was quite amused with himself that he was able to successfully achieve that. Father despised categorization. He felt that everybody was unique in their own special way. Jazz being a terminology, that a term that he, he didn't really like, and ergo the point of why um, one of the earlier bands was spelled J-A-S-S, -S, because he really didn't like J-A-Z-Z. -Z. <laughs> and one of his first groups that was, before he made the transition of leaving Washington to go to New York, was the Washingtonians uh, with Elmer Snowden and Sonny Greer. The community at that time was very uh, impressionable upon my father. What was taking place around you, the social environment and the climate of that, very definitely influenced his music early in life and further decades ahead. The Early Side of Duke, a mini-doc you can watch along with so much more at the Black Broadway on You Transmedia Project. That's blackbroadwayonyou.com. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Today, we not only celebrate the first day of Black History Month, but we also commemorate the life of Cicely Tyson, who passed last week at age 96. Tyson spent more than 70 years in film and television. She became a trailblazer as one of the first successful black actresses to wear her hair in an afro on TV. On the show East Side, West Side, the very show where she debuted her natural hair, she was the first black woman to be given a recurring television spot. The roles she played were complex, and they ushered in a new era of black TV and cinema. Tyson acted in everything from Roots to How to Get Away with Murder, where she played the mother of Viola Davis. For many black women in Hollywood, that is what Cicely Tyson symbolically was, a mother and a role model. In this clip from the Netflix campaign Strong Black Lead, Tyson shares an encouraging message to black women. In so many words, it is the essence of what she strived for her legacy to be. Hey, queen. <laughs> Girl, you've done it again. Constantly raising the bar for all of us and doing it flawlessly. When you've come to learn that all that I have learned, one thing remains the same, and that is being true to yourself is the key. Knowing your roots and where you come from is also key. Keep that with you always. And always remain graceful even when you fall. Huh. There's a sweet justice in knowing that the path you are on was designed for you and you alone. Listen to me. When I say the best is yet to come, Keep your chin up high and your standards higher. And remember, you are a queen.
And that's our show for today. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banger-Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Muhammad. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com WPFWMMQB. Please stay safe. Keep your social distance. Mask up. And thank you for listening to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York. Thank you.